Where does Jesus live? What? Oh, all kinds of answers. Okay. What's his address, you know? What is the what is Jesus? The answer depends, I guess, on what time you're thinking about. So let's think about like a million years ago, you know, like in eternity past, where did he live? Go ahead and shout out the answer. What do you think? Yeah. He lived in heaven. He has he has a home up in heaven, and, and he lived there with his father and and it was all good, right? And then during creation and, the, and during the Old Testament, say, so all the Old Testament from creation up until uh, a couple thousand years ago, where was Jesus' home? Well, it was still heaven, but he'd vacation on earth every once in a while. He would come visit every once in a while. He would show up in these different little stories, and we're told about them in the Old Testament. So sometimes he would visit Abraham. Sometimes he would visit Isaac and Jacob and different people um, throughout. He would show up sometimes as an angel, sometimes as a man. These are called Christophanies, a, a, a moment where Jesus would appear as a person. But he wasn't a person yet. He was just appearing as a person. Then 2,000 years ago, Jesus packed up and moved to earth from heaven. To do this, he had to take on a human body. And when you become a human, as Jesus did, you're a human forever. So Jesus took on a human body forever. He had to be, he had to be born as or from a woman. He had to um, live a human life, but he was still God. So this Jesus was now 100% God and 100% Man, and he will be forever. Do you guys know the big fancy church word for that? Being fully God and fully man forever? I'll give you like 38 Jesus points if you do. The hypostatic union. Yeah, yeah. Don't tell it, say I never taught you anything, right? The hypostatic union. That means Jesus was fully God and fully man at the same time. Unbelievable. Okay, so then Jesus dies, and he rises from the dead three days later. So where was his address then? Well, he was actually still on earth. Do you know he stayed on earth for another 40 days after he rose from the dead? Yeah, he hung out with his disciples for 40 more days. He had various meetings with up to 500 people saw him alive teaching and, and doing stuff in these meetings. 500 people saw him at the same time. So no one could ever say, oh, no, he didn't rise from the dead, because he did rise from the dead. We have over 500 people's eyewitness accounts. You know, he partied with his disciples, and he taught him many things during these 40 days. <sighs> the death on the cross is what, is what made the way for men to be forgiven of all their sins, and that was super important, okay? Then Jesus ascended into heaven. So now he moved his address back up into heaven, that place where there's no sin, there's nothing evil or bad. You know, it's a place fit for God to live. But a few weeks later, there was a day called Pentecost. And on that day, Jesus eagerly sends his spirit down, back down to earth from heaven to dwell in all of his believers. Dwell in. That means 
He sent his spirit to make his home inside our lives, inside our bodies. So now Jesus lives in heaven and not on earth, but he also lives in his church while we are on this earth. Jesus has figured out a way to dwell in our lives, in our hearts, and in heaven at the same time. So now when we get to heaven, it can be said something like this. Maybe at your funeral, maybe at my funeral, we'll say something like this. They, we get heaven inside of us long before we get to heaven ourselves. We get heaven inside us before we ever step foot into heaven. Do you guys want to hear the worst pickup line of all time? Okay. Hey, girl, did you fall from heaven? Because you look just like Satan himself. <laughs> I told you it was bad. Because <laughs> he fell from heaven. You get it? Okay. It was terrible? It was bad? A boo? Do I get a boo? Thank you. All right. All right. So let's start reading. In verse 23, just to... Uh, set our context here because he's talking about the gospel in verse 23, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. That word minister means pastor. So Pastor Paul, all right? Paul is a pastor. He wants to uh, help us understand what the gospel is. That's what he's saying here. The gospel was preached to every creature, and he's super excited about that, and he wants to make sure we all understand the gospel. And now he says, um, in verse 24, it says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. So what's going on in Paul's life? Paul is sitting, anyone know? In prison, right. He is in jail at this point. He's in a Roman jail. He's been in prison for preaching the gospel, for being a Christian. Did you know, in that time, Christians, the Romans thought that we were atheists, and yeah, isn't that weird? They thought we were atheists because they believed in hundreds of gods. Maybe they were pantheistic, which means they believed in all these many, many gods, and we only believe in one god. And so they're like, Psh, that's basically an atheist. And so Paul's in jail because of that. And he was able to see that his sufferings, what he was going through, was working something good for the people in the church. Now, what was going on? So while Paul was sitting in jail, he was just sitting there complaining and crying the whole time. No? No? Okay, good. You're keeping an eye. I'm glad you're keeping track of what I'm saying, because I'm not. No, Paul was not. That's what I would have been doing. I would have been super self-focused and sad and depressed but Paul, he was taking this time, and he was being productive. He was writing letters. And he understood that this time in jail was, even though it was not fun and it was not easy, it was part of God's plan. How many times do we hate things that are not fun and not easy? And, and we, we recoil from God's plan because we want things to just be easy. But Paul took this time to write letters and books. So what we're seeing here is that Paul rejoices in God's plan 
more than his own comfort or what he wants to happen in his life. This is a big deal. What do we care about more, God's will or our will? Once you become a Christian, you get, these, you get the Holy Spirit living inside you, and the Holy Spirit gives you these desires, this will to do what God wants. But we're still stuck with the old part of us that wants what we want. It's called our flesh. And so we have these competing desires, this war going on inside us once you become a Christian. Before that, we're just flesh, and we just do whatever we want. We're just fine with that. But becoming a Christian makes things really, really difficult. It makes it much more hard because now you have a competing desire to do something good. And that's how God works. He puts this desire in us to do good. And he says, I want you to choose to follow me, to make the choice to follow me. Paul had the choice of whether to keep following Jesus when it was difficult or to just do his own thing and complain. But he chose to, to suffer for Christ and to serve the people around him. When things are difficult in your life, do you serve people around you and love people more? Or do you focus on yourself and complain? That, yeah, that's probably what we do more. All right, then he says, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of the body, which is the church. The word afflictions here is never used to describe the sufferings of Jesus on the cross. Because when we first read this, you're like, what are you saying, Paul? Are you saying Jesus didn't suffer on the cross enough? Because we think of afflictions of Christ to think of his sufferings on the cross. But that's actually not what this is talking about. The, the word afflictions there doesn't mean anything about suffering physically. It's talking about the, um, the, the afflictions that Jesus endured in ministry, meaning that he was caring about people. And Paul's saying, I care about people the same way Jesus cared about people. God is deeply moved and affected by your life. So what it, th- think of the thing that's really hard in your life right now. The thing that you don't really want to talk to people about because they just wouldn't understand. The thing that people may get upset about if they knew about you. God feels your emotions. He, he knows how you feel. He knows what you're going through. And that for him is called an affliction. He takes that burden upon himself. And he just wants you to know how much he loves you. And so then he says, Jesus says, I want you guys to cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. Now that starts to make sense. That's what Paul's saying he's doing with Jesus. He's caring about the people. Jesus is not put off by your problems. And just like Paul, any good pastor should be able to listen to what you got going on and help you see God's will in it. Then he goes on to say, of which I became a minister, or we could say pastor, that word past minister there, according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you. So Paul says that God gave him his, this ability and this heart for the church, for the people. 
And it's because God loved the church that he gave us Paul. And God is a good steward or caretaker of his people, his family, his church. And that's why he gives and equips pastors, not for themselves, but for the church, for, for, for us as a church. That's why he gives us pastors. Then he says this, to, what is it for? To fulfill the word of God, the mystery, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Pastors tend to like mystery novels. Did you know that? I know I do. In fact, I'm thinking of writing a mystery novel. Or am I? (laughs) Well, here Paul says that the gospel is like a divine mystery. And when the Bible says a mystery, it doesn't, say, it doesn't mean something that's still a mystery. It's, it means something that was a mystery that's been solved or finished or revealed through Jesus. The, the plan of God used to be hidden in the Old Testament and a mystery, but it is no more a mystery. And that's what he means. And so the, he says here, the main job of a pastor is to fulfill this plan of explaining this mystery and teaching about God's grace, the mystery of God's grace, to the people of God, or they're called the saints, which is you. That's what the job of a pastor is, to help you understand the grace of God that was hidden from many generations, but now has been revealed in Jesus Christ. So, What is this grace gospel mystery that Paul and all the pastors from since Paul throughout the whole world are supposed to be teaching? Well, he says here, to them, God willed to you guys, to the people, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. That's all the people in the world, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This verse is, is huge. We could spend a year on just this verse. 52 sermons. So let's do it. Just kidding. We won't do that. But we could. So what is this mystery? What is this rich and glorious mystery? The mystery is Jesus gets inside of you. Jesus lives inside of you. And that is going to bring hope and glory to your life, which means meaning to your life. That means there's no meaning outside of this for your life. What is your life about? Well, all, of, all meaning outside of this is just going to fade away. And so having Jesus inside you is this glorious mystery that will bring meaning to your life. Why is it so rich? Why is this mystery so glorious? What is different about this than what the world has to offer, than what we get in the rest of our lives? Why is this so much better? That we, we dedicate an hour every single Sunday for our whole lives going to church to learn about this mystery. And then once it catches you, it's like your whole life is just focused on on experiencing this mystery of Jesus in you. 
Why is it so different? I'm not going to tell you yet. I'll tell you in a minute, okay? But the world today, so first I'm going to tell you what the world has to offer you, okay? The world today offers us something called self-esteem. You guys ever heard of that? Yeah, it's super popular. You could, you could describe it as self-effort, self-sufficiency. In fact, it's a huge industry in this world. It really started in the 1980s, you know, well, way before that, but as a, as a cultural movement and phenomenon here in America. It started in the 1980s by a guy named John uh, Vasconcelos. I don't know how to say his last name. He died in 2014, but he was a California state legislator for 38 years. And uh, in his obituary, the San Jose Mercury News described him as famously rumpled bear of a man who was colorful, witty, brilliant, angry, intellectual, and elegantly foul of mouth. Most of all, he was a nonconformist. And so this guy, Vasconcelos, was an idealist who was convinced that humans had untold, untapped greatness inside of them. But it was an idealism driven in part by a bevy of personal demons and a long-running battle to control his anger problems because he was quite public about his varied attempts at self-improvement, which ranged from obscure forms of therapy to the teachings of the New Age Isalan Institute in Big Sur, California. Anyways... He started this whole movement in government and, and education requiring schools to focus on self and teach self-esteem. And this was just the natural progression from baby boomers and their self-esteem uh, focus. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, you can trace it in Satan telling Adam and Eve that they should think about themselves first and not what God wanted them to do. All of this is based all of his work in the in the um, in education and politics was based on sketchy and false psychological data collected during the 1980s, mainly saying that criminals had low self-esteem. And so he said, "Why do criminals have low self-esteem? Maybe if they had higher self-esteem, they wouldn't be criminals." instead of the truth that they later discovered, which is that criminals had lower self-esteem because they were in jail and their life hadn't been going that well. And so they had low self-esteem as a consequence of what, what was going on in their lives. So the end result of all of this was that he got this, these, all this legislation passed in California, which eventually spread across the whole country and now is spread across the whole world, um, devoted to helping kids have self-esteem. It's actually hard to find a concrete dollar amount about the true size of this industry, but if you uh, take the industry in general, you can see that it's about $10 billion a year by 2015. As opposed to if you wanted to take the largest denomination in America, the SBC, their education budget, budget for the entire, like, Largest group of churches in the entire America was three hundred thirty-five million dollars for all their, all of their um, colleges, universities, and everything, and yet ten billion is what they're competing with. 
But let me summarize. So what's going on? What the world is offering us. They offer us us. They say what you really need is more of you. You just need to believe that you are all that you need. It's all about you. You are good enough for you. But the Bible is so clear, and it simply declares that you are dead. So you're not enough. Without God, without a unity with God, without a relationship with God where he lives in you, giving you life, you are like an empty jar filled with nothing. And filling nothing with more of nothing gives you nothing. It doesn't give you the soul-satisfying water that you need, the life-giving water that God offers us. See, it, the, all the self-esteem does is it ignores the, the desperate need that every man has for God's life-giving presence. It ignores it. It thinks the, the, the basis of it is that you don't need God. If you just tell yourself you're happy enough, you'll be happy. Or if you just do the things that make you happy, then you'll be happy and it's a, a, a complete lie because we cannot be happy apart from a deep connection with God where he is father and we are child. The Bible declares we are dead. We can't help anyone, even ourselves. So self-esteem is a big lie. Self-confidence is a deception. You know what it is? It's like plugging you guys seen those extension cords? Here, this one right here. See this extension cord down here on the ground? I don't want to move it because I'll break something. It's got all the plugs on top, and then it goes and it's supposed to plug into the wall. Well, self-esteem is like taking your plug and plugging it back into yourself and expecting there to be power, life-giving power in that philosophy. And there's just not so I, I could speak on this for hours and hours and hours, and I like to, but um, suffice it to say, it's a bankrupt philosophy that does not help a single person that ever is touched by it, ever. And so I'm not going to stand by and say, oh, yeah, just go work on self-sufficiency. Just go work on self-esteem. That's your problem. It's not your problem. But God has a rich and glorious solution to our self-problems. It says, our text again said, that to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus never says to look into yourself for a solution, for anything. He becomes our solution when he enters into us. Jesus dwells in us. And that's the solution for the self-esteem propaganda 
that is shaking our world. Jesus dwells in us. Don't look to self to give you hope. That's an empty well. It's a broken vending machine. You're not going to get the Snickers bar out of it. It will not satisfy. You, so what are we to do? We're simply to look to Jesus who has made himself available to us and chooses to dwell in us. All that you are not, he is. All that we lack, he provides. All that we yearn for, he supplies. All that we are required to become, he goes to work building us up. It is Jesus in every believer. Jesus has accomplished this wonderful mystery. How does he get in us? He has made a way for the God of all glory and power to dwell with and commune with man, to be your friend, your father, and provider, everything that you could ever need. And this is a mystery of all mysteries, the most important mystery in the universe, that God says, I'm going to let you in on the mystery. I'm going to explain what it's all about. It's all about you and Jesus becoming one. That doesn't mean you become Jesus. It means that you are united with him so much so that what he wants is what you want. A great picture of it is a glove. Picture yourself as the empty glove and Jesus like the hand that fills the glove that gives it power, direction, meaning, a purpose. That's what it's like. What more could we need? Let me tell you what Jesus does for us. While he dwells in us, he eliminates our sin. Eliminates it. He cleanses our guilt. All those feelings of guilt, you don't need to feel them anymore because Jesus cleanses it. Jesus washes away our shame. Jesus adopts us into his family. Jesus loves us. Truly loves us when all others fail us, when we are unlovable ourselves, when we are unreachable, when we are impossible, Jesus loves us more and better and more truly than we could ever comprehend or even imagine. Jesus loves us. Jesus chooses us. Jesus bears with us. He accepts us. But he doesn't just say, do whatever you want. Jesus transforms us by his love, by his spirit. The things you want to do, you're not going to do because you're going to choose to do what Jesus wants you to do because of his love for you. Jesus writes his will on your heart. He writes his law. On your heart. So it becomes our greatest desire is to live for him and to honor him 24 hours a day. You want to know what real joy is? It is not doing what you want, but instead doing what your heavenly father desires. 
that will make you happier than anything. Close your eyes and pray, God, what do you want me to do? God, what do you want me to do? Just in your life, seek God's will. And then when the the moment comes where you have to choose between God's will and your will, know this, if you choose God's will, there will be joy in your heart. And if you choose your own will, there will be sorrow in the end. It never comes right at the beginning that way because you're going to be denying self and you're going to be taking a road that is more difficult at the beginning. But in the end, it always plays out that way. There will be sorrow if we choose ourselves. It says, you know, the Bible says Satan's job, his mission is to steal, kill, and destroy. And so this whole self-esteem thing makes people think that they can be happy through focusing on self, but it's really accomplishing Satan's plan, which is to steal their joy to eventually kill their spiritual lives. We're not going to take it lying down. We're going to choose Jesus because he truly does offer those things. Jesus dwells in us. Think about this, guys. Jesus makes your heart his home. We are his resting place. You know where I love to sit on couches? In my own living room. All other couches are weird to me. I never fall asleep on other people's couches because I'm not at rest there. But on my couch, I'll fall asleep any moment of the day. You never know when I might fall asleep because I'm just at rest. His work as well is done in us. He doesn't leave. He works from home. He is comfortable with you. He is not disappointed with you. He delights to spend time in his home, which is your heart. Jesus delights to dwell in us. He never thinks you are unworthy. Even though we are unworthy. But in his eyes, in his mind, and in truth, he has done things, horrible things terrible things to make you worthy. He has endured incredible pain and bloodshed to transform the home, to make it worthy for him to dwell in. And that's what he does for us. Even though we are unworthy and incapable, Jesus dwells in us anyway. What grace is this? What mercy, what glory This is better than all that the world could ever offer us. And it's better than all that Satan could ever tempt us with. And because Jesus is better, Jesus satisfies us to our most innermost desires. That's what Jesus does. He sets us free from temptation by ravishing us with his love. Where we feel that it is better to know and and be close to the love of God than anything Satan may offer us. And that is how to be free from all temptations in your life. Focus your heart 
drink deeply of the love of God, and Satan's temptations will smell disgusting to your heart. And you'll want to get as far away from them as you possibly can. Jesus dwells in us. The very one who created life dwells in us. So what can death do to me? What can death threaten me with when I have an everlasting supply of life dwelling in me? Death can only cry as I dance on his head when my heart stops beating. For we shall never die. Our bodies might decay and our hearts might stop beating, but death will never get his cold hands on us. For Jesus, who is life himself, dwells in us. And when this tent is of no more use, God has prepared a new body, a new structure, fit for heaven that we will live in forever. This is why it's so good to remember that Jesus dwells in us. Our text again says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I will never need self-esteem again, for Jesus dwells in me. Guys, what I'm telling you is what you have when you look into yourself. You don't need to look for yourself. That's going to leave you empty, but you have Jesus dwelling in you, which is so much more valuable than what the world is trying to get you to look at. You will never need to trust yourself again, for Jesus is trustworthy and Jesus dwells in you. You are his love. You are his bride. You are his counterpart. His entire focus is you, and he dwells in you. Jesus dwells in you. Close to you, not good enough. Jesus was close to his disciples, but that did not satisfy him at all. Jesus wanted to be in us. Near wouldn't satisfy his heart. No, the only thing that would work for Jesus because of his great love for you is to be in us. And we call this unity or united closeness. That's what Jesus wanted and what Jesus made It means that there is no division whatsoever. There's no separation. You are his. He is yours. And that relationship can never be broken. All of his riches are yours. All the riches of his love and his joy belong to you. There's no need to search them out in various places. I just want to be happy in my life. You're looking in the wrong place. I just want to feel loved. You're looking in the wrong place. 
there's only one relationship that will give us joy and love perfectly, and that is Jesus dwelling in us. We need, what do we need to have, sorry, what do we need to have that Jesus has not met? What need do we have that Jesus has not met? What inner room does Jesus not know about in our hearts and does not fill and does not claim ownership of? He wants to fill your, all the rooms of your heart with his wonderful fragrance and joy and love. So why do we keep closets closed and hide things from God? We don't have to. Jesus is going to keep knocking on those doors until we open them up. You will never need or lack anything that Jesus will not supply to you. And we just keep things away from him because we're afraid that he is going to let us down. That if he saw who we really were, if he saw what we really wanted, that he would abandon us or turn his back on us. And that's a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. He supplies our needs. He he already knows what's in all the rooms. But he's going to keep searching in our hearts till our whole hearts belong to him. Christ is in you, and that's the hope of glory. Jesus is alive, guys, and he proved it when he rose from the dead. And to what purpose did he rise? To fill us with himself. His spirit is poured out into every human being who would believe in him. Jesus wanted to reproduce his own life in this world, his own heart, and his his own love. And he did this by dwelling in us. So he wants everyone in the world to experience what it was like when Jesus walked this earth by filling you with him. That's how he does it. What a great calling. And I wonder if all our problems could be kind of solved if we truly knew and believed that Jesus dwells in us. I wonder if we took time to enjoy his presence daily if we would be stronger I wonder if when we went to him each instant and when we were tempted or when we needed anything or when we felt something, I wonder what we would discover if we chose him first. A faithful friend, a gracious Lord, a heavenly father, a giving shepherd, a Holy Spirit. I never knew that Jesus wanted to give me all this. I've never had this in my life. I don't know anything about this. Then all you need to do is confess that you need Jesus and that you have sinned and fallen short. Believe that his life was perfect and his death was for you. Believe that he rose from the dead. And to all who believe in him, he will come and dwell in them. All of this will be yours. The second group in, in our room here might say, man, I've, I've kind of forgotten all that Jesus has given to me. I've looked elsewhere for life. I've drifted away. I've left my first love. And to you, I would say, come back. 
Jesus claims your whole life as his, everything. Your name, your identity, your whole being, everything is his. And he is yours. His whole life will be yours and your joy will only be full when you respond by the same giving of your life in full and complete surrender, just like he gave his life in full and complete surrender for you on the cross. He held back nothing. And he says, if you want to experience my joy, if you want to be my counterpart, surrender the same way that I did. And all God's people said, amen. Hallelujah. That's right. Let's sing some more. We're going to take some time here to respond, to let God's word just speak to our hearts. And if there's anything that you need to confess to the Lord, anything you need to get right that you've been holding back, God says, Surrender fully to me if you want the joy of the Lord. And the joy of the Lord, guys, is so much better than anything you're trying to scratch or claw to get out of your life. I implore you, surrender everything to God. And he will make it good. He will reward anyone who trusts in him with so much grace and so much um, intimacy with him. It's, it's awesome. So would you guys uh, stand with me as we turn down the lights and we're going to sing these songs. We have communion available over here on the little table. So if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you and you believe that you have that relationship with him, then God says, I invite you to come in and celebrate. And by taking a a piece of bread and remembering my body was broken for you and taking a little bit of juice and remembering it's like my blood was poured out for you to purchase all these things for you. So you would know that I love you. So we celebrate his love with communion during these songs. So God, we pray. First of all, if anyone in here just has something to surrender I'm just going to let a few moments of silence uh, for your Holy Spirit to speak to us. If there's something that we're holding on to, some uh, uh, philosophy or some sin, God, that we are holding back from you, God, we pray that you would just speak to our hearts right now. God, the devil tricks us into thinking that we can get our happiness by selfish means. And it's just so sad because any happiness we get by following Satan will be poisoned. And our hearts will suffer loss because of that. Our, our joy will be poisoned and our hearts will be sick. God, we want the pure water of your love. And so, Jesus, we look to you, to you alone. 
We surrender all parts of our life, all areas, all things that we think, all things that we desire, all things that we do, Jesus, are yours. Because you are love and you are also king. We pray that you would fill us, fill us to overflowing with your love and your wisdom because, God, this world needs a light in it, in the darkness. And this world maybe has been sad for a long time. And I believe this world needs believers who are filled with the joy of the Lord walking among people who are sad, people who are hurting. And I pray, God, that for your own glory, you would fill every single person in this room with more joy than they could contain. And that when people see it and people are jealous of how joyful we are, God, that they would ask, where did we find such joy? God, may we point them to Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our heavenly bridegroom, who has loved us when we were unlovable and paid for our sins and done everything that we could never do. To him be the glory forever and ever in all the church. We pray this all in his name. Amen.